Now you listen to me, you gutter mouth punk. I've dealt with you before, and every time I did, it took me a month to wash off the filth. Jonathan, what's going on? Are you ready to record yet? No, I don't have time to record right now. I'm in the middle of a 72-hour marathon binge session of uh, Dragnet 68. Told you, were gonna take her you don't have time for this. Uh, Jonathan, lucky for you, we are bringing in Dr. M.L. Steiner today, who's going to talk about binge viewing, and I, I think you need help. I get your head up when I'm talking to you. I just need just the facts, man. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Bullinger. Here with me, Steve Voorhees. Steve... How are you today? Are you excited to uh, binge, if you will, a lot of content about binge TV? Yeah, Jonathan, it's uh, good to see you again. It's uh, nice to be back in the studio. I'm excited for this interview. I uh, I really uh, think that binge viewing, binge watching, it's such a topical term right now um, for viewers and audiences. And I it, I think the majority of us in America have done it at some point on some kind of content. So, uh, you know, learning more about the history of this and the significance of it and, and really what's going on in that audience industry dynamic, um, you know, should be fun to, to look into. Now, Steve, you as a busy guy, uh, you teach too much, you work too much, you've got a whole bunch of kids and a full family life. Do you find, do you, do you actually binge, binge watch these days, or is that not your habit? That's a good question. Um, and I think we're going to get into the definition of binge watching, right? It's got to be the same show. Um, it has to be more than two episodes. I think if it's an hour long drama, there, there are rules to this game when you define binging. So for me, I, uh, I think sleep incorporates into my binging where I sit mm. down and I may be watching a series but I'll, I'll fall asleep. A lot of my TV viewing is late at night um, when I'm done at the end of the day. How about you? What do you, what do you watch? I, it's, it's funny is, is I, the, and I mentioned this on a mini episode, but in the summer, I really wanted to get through the Paramount plus Star Trek, strange new worlds season one, because I want to see an episode from season two and I didn't want to just watch it sort of isolated. So I absolutely binge that first season uh, over maybe two and a half days or two and a half nights. And I enjoy it, but the whole thing with binge for me is like, I enjoy it, but it's like when you read a book too quickly, you get so engrossed in it, but then you don't really remember all the, all the details. The other thing, and we didn't, we don't get into this in the conversation uh, 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 too much, but the, the thing too, I kind of like is some of the, some of the streaming services now, make you wait uh, like old school TV every Thursday or every Tuesday for a new episode to be released. So it's kind of hard, at least in the immediate to binge uh, unless of course you just wait to the whole, you know, the whole season's been released and then you can sit there and, and consume it all. But I was going to ask you, uh, you want to reveal whether this is a dirty little secret of parenting or not. Do your, ch uh, do your children, do they binge watch as a way to give you time to collect your marbles and not go nuts? Like, do you just ever park them in front of the TV and like, 
yeah, watch four episodes, kiddo. I got daddy's got to write a paper. No, it happens more a little more naturally if I'm uh, preparing dinner uh, for the kids or if um, my wife and I are, are working on a home project, let's say garden outside or, um, well, I guess they'll be outside with us. I'm trying to think of an example, but if I'm busy with something, uh, you know, they'll gravitate to certain activities and sometimes it's the TV and with apps, you know, they'll, they'll start watching a show. And I think this is where my research really comes in. I'm, I'm really big on Raymond Williams concept of flow and that control of programming. And um, even though it's nonlinear and they get to select the show, you know, having that autoplay afterwards, which so many apps do, it just allows the binging to happen naturally where they'll just watch another episode of the series. And, um, you know, I start to hum theme songs of my kids' shows that I realize like, oh, I'm humming the Odd Squad theme song. Why, what, where am I getting this from? Oh, it's on in the background. They're watching Odd Squad and they'll watch two or three episodes. Uh, and, you know, as a parent, it's also, okay, let's do something else, kids. Let's uh, turn off the set and go do something else. So there, there is yeah, that unhealthy stigma that still, as a parent, is baked into you. Because I think it's what my parents said to me, too, you know. I mean, I was going to say, like, do we have those little sort of moments where the kids have a fit as you try to go, no, you're not going to watch a fourth episode. We have to do this other thing. And they're like, no, like I, like you said, the theme song's starting. It's, it's going again. Like, I want more. I want more. Do you have any of those little, like little mini battles with the kids? Yes. I become aware of how long they've been watching and I wait for the episode to end. And then it's quick. Grab the remote before the next episode begins. You're not getting sucked in. I do that. Uh, and you want to try to get a natural ending point because I don't want to cut them off in the middle of a program. So you got to be careful because right. you don't want to get them in the first two minutes of a show and then have to be the monster that says, it's time to go. We got to turn this off. Last question. Then we get to uh, have this conversation with, with Emil Steiner. But my guess is with tablets and, and larger smartphones being, uh, you know, so uh, commonplace these days, you, you mentioned the remote, right? I got to get the remote out of their hands. Is there ever a situation where their they're, they're little, little kiddo is sort of, you know, impressed into the couch and they've got like an iron grip on the tablet or on the smartphone or whatever, and it becomes more of a literal physical battle of like, no, I said we're done. We gotta, we gotta get rid of this. Right, or do you limit the tablet stuff? Yeah, they, our kids don't have smartphones yet. They're too young still. Uh, They're twenty-two, right? <laughs> you know, watching Hot Squad. <laughs> um, I, I uh, my my son, I'll out him here. Um, six years old. He has a uh, he, he has his little secret hiding place for the remote, and it's under the couch cushion. So what he will do oh, is he'll yeah. lift up the couch cushion. He puts the remote under it. And the game is time to turn off the TV. And we have a flat screen TV that does not have a, a physical on and off button on the TV like many don't nowadays. And you have to either unplug the TV to get it off or you have to use the remote. Those are the only two options that we have available oh, to wow. him. And he will hide the remote under the cushion of the couch. But I, I'm I'm on to him now. So I just know when he says, I can't find the remote. I can't turn it <laughs> off, Dad. Like, yeah, I know where it is. Same hiding uh, spot. So, yeah, there's tactics, definitely tactics that uh, the viewer will use, right? It, 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 real quick, remind me a story, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into this interview. I was listening to one of, I don't know if you know the comedian, uh, John Hodgman. He was on The Daily Show years ago, and he does animated shows these days, and he does podcasts, and he writes columns and things. But anyway, 
he told a really funny story. I'll just do a quick ver- Cliff Notes version where he and his, I think, teenage daughter, uh, a family, they were over in maybe like France or something. They're traveling. And of course, as teenagers, I did the same thing, right? You want to get away from the parents. You want to go do your own thing, whatever. So she's like, I want to go explore, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, okay, fine. But you got to turn on whatever that tracking thing is on this on a smartphone so that, you know, God forbid something to happen. You know, she goes, oh, you know, I can't. It, it's broken. It, it, it doesn't, it hasn't worked in months. You know, I just can't get it to work or whatever. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but if that's not working, I'm, I'm sorry. You're just not going to go explore. And she goes and sulks and in, in back wherever the hotel room was or whatever. And he says, and he says it better than I'm going to say it, but he goes, wouldn't you know it? But about 13 minutes later, that app suddenly started working. It got fixed. <laughs> suddenly she could track herself immediately. And then, and then of course she's like, can I go? Can I go? And then of course, yeah, now you can go. So it's, it's hilarious. The strategies kids, you know, employ to, to get what they want. So, Listeners, we're going to take you now to our interview with Dr. Emil Steiner about his new book on Binge TV. Uh, I mentioned this in the interview, but just to be thorough, it's titled Binge TV, The Rise and Impact of the Viewing uh, Revolution. Uh, I think you'll, you'll get a kick out of it. So here's our, here's our discussion. We're fortunate today, uh, Steve and I, Steve and I are both in studio today, and we get to talk with uh, a return guest. Uh, those of you who've listened to last season's uh, batch of episodes, are we familiar with uh, Emil Steiner? He and I spoke about uh, sports documentaries and a little bit of binge uh, watching as far as television, but we really get a treat today because like a lot of young scholars, he has a brand new book out and that is Binge TV, The Rise and Impact of the Viewing Revolution. We'll put a link to that, of course, on the website. That's from uh, McFarland and Company. So I thought it'd be a lot of fun today for Steve and I to sit down, because Lord knows we love to talk about TV, and talk about this idea of binge TV. Now, just to give you a little context here, is uh, Dr. Steiner is really looking at this concept of binge TV, at least in my understanding, the concept of binge TV in American culture, and doing that through uh, the discourse, through the dialogue, particularly from journalists and other folks who have been sort of framing our understanding of, of, of binge TV and really trying to kind of define, really define a term that quite honestly is kind of overused at this point, right? There's one of those slippery terms. So uh, uh, first off, I'll say, uh, uh, Emil, welcome. Thank you so much for coming back on. Good to see you today. And uh, start us off with you know, give the audience a little bit of an idea here about uh, what was your interest in this? Remind people sort of what is it about binge TV that just sort of wants you to get you to want to write an entire book about it? <laughs> well, uh, Jonathan, uh, Stephen, th- thanks for having me back on Inside the Box. It's a pleasure to be here um, and, uh, and to talk with uh, both of you this time. Um, so what got me interested in binge watching uh, to the point where I needed to write a book about it. I think it started uh, sometime in the 1980s when I was a a young boy and I would wake up every Saturday morning and uh, watch cartoons from, you know, 6, 7 a.m. until noon or so or until my my parents pulled me away from the television. Uh, And I think that that's really where this idea of being able to watch something 
um, that I wanted to watch that I could control for uh, as long as I could uh, get away with it was um, something that I, I found to be appealing. Uh, and I, I knew that there was something there in that, that feeling of being able to sort of decide, of course, within certain structures and boundaries that TV had at that time, but to be able to decide for myself how I enjoyed the experience. Um, I think th those were sort of the first uh, little seeds for me of, of that. And, um, you know, I, I just I describe this in the book, uh, but I came from a, a household from a family of people who were really into books um, and not really into television. Um, and I think that um, that sort of uh, that sort of feeling that, um, you know, there was something uh, that was looked down upon about TV um, and yet I enjoyed it, um, created, a, a, you know, feelings uh, for me that, um, well, I really like this. So why is it so bad? And uh, that makes you want to sort of explore it more. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of did that over the years. I mean, you know, I watched obviously a lot of TV as I grew up from then, from then. but um, I, I think that, that that sort of struggle between this kind of high culture versus of books and low culture of, of sort of television um, and the idea of getting pleasure out of something that was sort of seen socially culturally as, as not the best thing for many, many years created in me a, a sort of desire to just want to explore it more uh, and to, you know, sort of say, well, why does it have to be so bad? Why, why does TV have to be this idiot box? Why, why do people consider um, those of us, those many, many, many of us who like to watch TV couch potatoes? Like what, what's behind that, that, that sort of um, stigma about it. Um, uh, and you know, that, that, that's really what sort of set the, set the scene for me. Um, and you know, as I, as I grew up and TV got better, uh, and better over the years, both in terms of the, the quality of the, the picture, the variety of channels, the, uh, frankly, the content, uh, the writing, the acting, the, um, you know, the, the, the cinematic values of it, the uh, everything, it, it became, uh, you know, sort of a better, more valued product, but also um, sort of culturally uh, more valued um, along with the technology that got better. I, you know, I, I, I sort of was along for the ride and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to study that. I wanted to learn more about that. I wanted to, to explore it. And, uh, I guess, again, I'm, I'm, I'm really summarizing parts of the book that I, I, I talk about this in more depth, but around 2012, uh, you know, Netflix began releasing, uh, you know, series uh, in single drops where you could watch the episodes from beginning to end and, and the streaming technology and internet infrastructure was there um, that really kind of pushed us into this era of being able to binge watch things. But as I, as I say, I, I, I believe I've been binge watching for years. I just didn't have the words for it. You know, I didn't know what it was called, but uh, I and many, many other people had been binge watching. We just, we were just watching a lot of TV. There wasn't sort of a term for it. And so as that kind of exploded, I happened to be entering graduate school and, you know, there are a lot of different things I, I guess I could have studied in media and communication, but I found myself drawn to binge watching and, Netflix and all these things that were kind of happening then. And 
you know, my advisor, uh, my, my committee, uh, Dr. Carolyn Kitch over at Temple, Brooke Duffy, who is now at Cornell, um, and, uh, and Fab, Fabian Darling-Wolf, who's also uh, at, at Temple still, they, they were very encouraging uh, of me to explore uh, binge watching and to study it. And so I did. I'm going to jump in there because you're offering a lot of good information here. One thing that kind of caught my eye and in your research, it shows that 2012 sort of became a bit of a buzzword in part due to these rising technologies, et cetera. But what I thought was a really interesting line from you, and I know it's a little annoying as people sort of quote lines back to, you know, creators, but I, I was hoping you might be able to unpack this a little bit for the audience is, is you wrote, uh, television is and has always been a struggle for control between creators and consumers. And I think at first that seems counterintuitive to audiences, right? They think like, well, no, we only really got control, you know, in the last so many years as, as these technologies came in. So maybe just uh, briefly unpack that a little bit for audiences about sort of where, where were those areas, where were those fields of battle for control, you know, pre uh, streaming, you know, pre DVR, that sort of, that sort of idea. That is, I, I really think that that's a, um, a good quote. That's definitely a sort of catchy quote. And I think it captures a lot of what this book is about, that struggle for control of the story, for control of the narrative. Um, you know, uh, and I don't want to get too deep into sort of theory and stuff on this uh, because uh, we don't have the time and it might be really boring, but, uh, you know, in, in discourse, in any sort of communication, there's a sender, right, and a receiver, and you know, and this sort of back and forth of, of, of uh, sort of energy going back and forth there and uh, through the circuit. And, you know, uh, for many years, you're right, during the early days of, of TV, uh, it seemed like the broadcasters held all of the control, right? They controlled the channels, they controlled the content. Um, you know, there were rules about what could go on there and there were commercial constraints around that. But they basically, you know, let's say three networks, you know, had the vast majority of all uh, of all TV, you know, watching content out there. Um, now, they, there was some control on the part of the viewers though, right, in the form of ratings. Uh, so, you know, viewers, could watch something or not watch something, right? And uh, obviously, because it was a commercial advertising-driven medium, the number of eyeballs that were on something mattered. Um, And so, uh, to an extent, viewers had some control over the story because they could sort of not watch or they could watch something else. Um, But because there were so few channels um, and such limited uh, variety and really the model during the broadcast era of the you know most of the 20th century was let's just maximize the number of people we can let's have the highest rated show during that time slot um because of that uh it made sense economically for for channels uh, sorry for broadcasters to create shows that had very inoffensive very sort of standardized uh easy to consume stuff that will appeal to the masses, to the, to the most viewers, because that economically made the most sense for them. So um, viewers had some agency during the early periods, but not much. But there was a struggle for control because there's always the interpretation, too, of a story. Uh, even though the broadcasters, you know, you know, had the writers, they had the actors, they had everything that they put out there. 
fans, viewers still interpreted that story. They still made it their own. Um, and they talked about it and they, uh, you know, uh, created, uh, you know, their own ideas about that story. Um, and so, yes, in the earlier uh, eras, you are right that, that there was far less control, I would say, um, from the audience, from viewers. Um, but there was some. And it's always been that sort of struggle. Like anytime you tell a story, right, you write it. You know, I write a book. It gets published, but you read it, right? You are the ones who then have some control of, through your imagination of what my words mean, uh, and you make them your own. So they're, they're, that always exists. Uh, but with TV, it's particularly sort of uh, there because it's so public and it's so it's so massive in terms of its consumption um, that that the viewer really is the one that um, you know matters, even though they're treated, as particularly during the twentieth century, as just being this mass silent uh, majority uh, who, you know, they, their eyeballs, their, uh, you know, uh, a demographic group maybe that, you know, that certain advertisers want. Um, but there's that struggle. Um, there's that struggle. Uh, and of course, as technology got better, we got more channels and stuff. The viewer began to take some of that control little by little. Uh, VCRs were incredibly empowering because they allowed viewers to an extent to be able to record the little the shows that they want and to skip commercials and to watch when they wanted to watch as opposed to having to wait for the broadcaster to to send them the show through uh, you know through the airwaves. So um, I think that that, that that struggle for control has always been there uh, in, in in television. Um, as it is in, in, in most storytelling, I think. But in television, I feel like, you know, it really just the technology makes it so much more obvious. You have a literal sender of a broadcaster and a literal receiver of a TV box there, right? And it's the signal is sent and received. But uh, the viewer uh, the viewer uh, has power to push back. And, and they haven't. And again, as the technology got better, the viewer became better at uh, sort of pushing back and, and you know, if fast forward like 70 years, now we're, now we're in an age where it's so nicheified, like what is uh, available to watch uh, that uh, to some extent it's it's been satirized in, 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 uh, in Black Mirror. But, uh, they, you know, it's really, really becoming just one person watching a show about themselves. Yeah. One of the things I really liked about your book was the control you gave to the reader, this choose your own adventure. And you even posed that idea of, you wanted to do it as your dissertation. I would have loved to have read a choose your own adventure dissertation. That'd be so cutting edge. Um, but the journalistic review you do, it's really impressive that um, what caught my eye was Andy Wickstrom in 1986, writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer. That's really where you uh, go against what the Oxford uh, English Dictionary says about the definition of binge viewing. And you find this in 1986, which I kind of took as the the really first true understanding of the current term of binge, not maybe what they wrote in the fifties, but um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think the VCR, which you just brought up, that was really the, the pivotal point, right? And mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you, uh, you, you, you got that out of the, the, the history uh, part of that book. That was the, definitely the most painstaking laborious part of the research. And, and I'm glad that, that, that you found some value in that. I appreciate hearing that. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, you're right. Yeah, Ox, you know, Oxford Dictionary um, and others have sort of sort of stated again the idea that uh, that binge watching really first started in the late '90s in these uh, you know sort of uh, Usenet groups of, of of 
sort of super fans, uh, you know, talking about X-Files and things like that. And that, that was used there. But binge viewing, which in my opinion is pretty much a synonym of binge watching, more so than marathon. Uh, for various linguistic reasons that I get into in the book. But um, binge viewing was used uh, earlier. Um, and yeah, it was Wickstrom. Uh, there was also an instance in 1982 or three where it was said, but the, really as a gerund there, uh, you know, referring to binge viewing, I believe, of soap operas. I think it was, uh, he was, it was one of those sort of uh, Christmas time uh, articles for last minute gifts and uh, he being a sort of TV media critic, he wrote about scotch tape as a gift for uh, for those who, uh, yeah, for binge viewing, uh, if you've, you know, used it for those younger folk, uh, you know, VHS tapes were literally, you know, tape uh, that could rip and fray. And so you get scotch tape for the binge view, uh, for those people who like to binge view the uh, the soap operas. I think he was talking about soap operas. So, yeah. Um, but, but I found that fascinating because... Um, you know, people were doing it and you're right. VCR, I think is, is, is one of them, the sort of real proto binge watching, uh, technologies. Um, it didn't allow for the way that we sort of interpret it in terms of the streaming because you were beholden to what the broadcasters put on, but VCRs allowed you to record what you wanted, uh, off of that broadcast, um, off the broadcast channels and then to be able to watch them later, which was you know, uh, game changing. There was, in fact, a Supreme Court case uh, about it because, um, uh, and interestingly, it was not the TV stations. It was it was more the the movie studios who were really nervous that Sony um, and the Betamax, I believe, technology was gonna uh, basically make it so that you know movies that were broadcast on TV would no longer be you know that they would lose the control of that TV. Nobody thought, oh yeah, they'll record a few episodes, you know, of, uh, I don't know, Dallas, whatever, we can live with that. Nobody's going to try to, you know, sell you VHS tapes of, of Dallas, right? You know, it just wouldn't work. But, you know, E.T. or something gets uh, recorded, then we'll never, you know, what can we do? So, uh, yeah, I, I really think that that um, is sort of an overlooked part of the history, that how much VCRs changed um, the power dynamic in terms of giving power to the viewer. Well, and, you, you even talk yeah. about how box sets would never fit on a VHS. Could you imagine Hill Street Blues on a VHS collection? <laughs> you wouldn't have any space in your house for I it. I mean, yeah, yeah. For those who are who do not remember or too young to know VHS tapes, they didn't hold much stuff. You could maybe fit on some of them like three hours, maybe two, three hours, depending. And so think about you know think about a, a one of those TV shows that has twenty three episodes in a season. I think, think about how much space that just takes up. You would need shelves and shelves and shelves of, of VHS tapes for what you know now is streaming completely in your phone, right? You mentioned just a few minutes ago the idea that in your definitions, right, there's there's binge viewing, there's binge watching, there's you know binge TV, there's marathon, and and for the audience who is interested in this, and you might pick up this book or take a look at it. If you like that level of depth, he he certainly delivers on that. He really sort of explains why one is a synonym and one is different and all that stuff. But selfishly, what I'm going to say to you is that I feel like there's a different project in here, maybe not for you, but maybe for someone else's work. But you mentioned that in the early 1950s, when television was still relatively new uh, as a medium, and I, I wasn't aware of this, so I'm fascinated by it, is that politicians would do what you refer to as TV marathons as sort of political stunts. 
But I think someone needs to sort of look at that idea and maybe compare it to sort of current sort of social media or even or maybe even old school access, uh, a local TV access sort of idea where you have chunks of content, chunks of programming space available, and you can kind of kind of do these things. So uh, I'm going to hold that there for a second. And, and here's where I, I really do want to ask you this question, uh, Emil. So what I really love is you talked about this idea and you created this hierarchy of, of, t- of binging, of, of TV content that one binges, right? And what is more susceptible to binging, what seems less, et cetera. So here's the unfair question for our days and our current days and times since you just mentioned it. How does this hierarchy, how does this work that you've done and you now understand about binge TV, is it in any way applicable to how your students and my students and Steve's students sort of consume TikTok or consume Instagram or consume whatever? Uh, how do we understand binge in a social media a social media age? Okay, so yeah, a lot there. <laughs> so we have, uh, first of all, I totally agree with you and I really, I hope that somebody uh, uh, does take a dive um, at looking at sort of the, yeah, Marathon 1950. I put it, so I, I'll get to the TikTok thing uh, in, a, in a moment, but I do want to address what you said first, um, because I think that um, when, I, when I was trying to do this journalistic history, um, trying to find the, um, the articulations made by journalists to shape what binge meant um, and sort of understanding what TV was, I kept coming across marathon way more frequently in the earlier periods of time when, you know, the, the 1940s, 50s, 60s. I mean, basically the 20th century marathon was used more, but really in the 1950s. I think that there, you know, so I had to include it. You know, I, I couldn't just ignore marathon, even though I hadn't intended to do it. So I ended up tracing this whole kind of journalistic history of marathon as well as binge watching, because I think the distinction between them is important. Um, I think they... And mad respect to Lisa Perks because uh, she uses the term, you know, media marathoning. Uh, and I really respect the work she does. And, and I think she's brilliant. Um, I, I feel like the marathon uh, doesn't capture the way people understand binge watching uh, in the same way. And I'll, uh, for various linguistic reasons, thing to do with health, binging versus running, you know, the, the various connotations that are associated with the irony that's used with binging and the earlier uses of marathon. So again, I really hope somebody jumps into doing some research on those early times because there were some very interesting things that they were, were doing. These, these idea of political stunts um, where, you know, politicians would basically do a marathon. And an important distinction there between that and binging, though, is that the marathon often has to do with somebody on the screen being a marathon. There are a lot like a, a telethon, like a Jerry Lewis, um, these politicians who would literally be on air for 24 hours. So they are the subject of the marathon or the binge. They are the ones who are doing it. The viewer is sort of homogenized into this mass audience that may be tuning in, maybe not, but they're not in control of the binge the, or the marathon. The, the, the person doing it is the person on the screen largely. So, um, that, that, that's the marathon part. And I, again, there is a lot of really interesting things going on there that I hope somebody uh, looks into. Um, okay. So in terms of the binge hierarchy that you brought up, so uh, this was based on, um, again, an exhaustive sort of look at the, the journalism from 2012 to 2016 when binge, uh, been binge watching as a sort of a verb, 
uh, as a term, but, you know, it became sort of an active verb, went from being, um, you know, this sort of niche thing that nobody really heard of, even though most people were kind of doing, to being the new normal mainstream everything. And it happened that four years. And again, the number of articles that were printed or posted or whatever, written by, uh, you know, uh, news people about uh, binge watching during that period was like, you know, it's 10,000 plus for in four years, as opposed to the 60 years before that, when it's like 200 and some, right? And most of those were in the 2000s. So again, it's like this, I have a graph of the book, but I mean, it's true. It just, it just, you know, it, go, it becomes a buzzword. Everybody's talking about binge watching. So I analyzed those news articles that were written in there to try to find, to coalesce around a definition of binge watching made by journalists during that time. Um, one of the criteria for that definition um, was uh, the, the hierarchy, the sort of what con what what shows can be binge watched and what can't. And I came up with this kind of hierarchy based on like my textual analysis of all these journalistic articles. What do journalists say you can watch? Because you know when a term is new, when a technology is new, when a cultural phenomenon is happening, people turn to quote unquote experts or the media or whatever to get a better understanding of what to do. It's like oh, everyone's talking about this binge watching thing. How do you do it? What is it? Right. And so the way the journalists describe uh, how to do it and when to do it, all these things, why we're doing it. And in this case, what it is you watch to be binge watching matter because they shape our sort of understanding. I mean, they're not everything. Journalists don't do everything, but they they do leave some impression on uh, the public because of the nature of their job. Um, so I tried to extract out of that these various criteria. And one of them was sort of you know, what kind of stuff, what kind of content constitutes binge watching. And, and it, it became clear during the analysis that there was this kind of hierarchy that existed, right? They sort of privileged certain content as being more binge worthy and other content either by omission, by them not describing binge watching it, not using binge to describe viewing it, uh, or by just sort of saying it's not good enough or you can do it, but it's not really the best thing for that. They kind of downplay its worthiness. And so despite binge watching being all about sort of uh, in some ways breaking this sort of barrier, this cultural stranglehold that uh, TV had been in for all these years, um, even when that happens, there's still suddenly this hierarchy of, oh, you know, these prestige dramas, these are the most worthy of binge watching. And, you know, to some extent, there's structural truth to that, but to another extent, it's cultural construction. Now, the hierarchy um, that, that I have in there, um, again, it's from 2012 to 2016. Lots changed since then, right? Um, we have so many different episodes, shapes, sizes, streams, you know. I, when I, you know, even when I was like, I interviewed people, you know, going, you know, later than, than that period because I, I did follow-ups with people like that. It, social media makes it all very, very complicated, right? So, I mean, the easiest one to look at is YouTube because that actually is sort of more traditional video, but there, you know, people are sort of challenged by the idea, like particularly older people, that you can even be binge watching uh, YouTube because YouTube is thought of to be on a computer alone, even though now it's not. It's on your big screen and everything. Um, when you get into sort of the, the the micro episodes and the sort of social media and TikTok and things like that. Um, I've, you know, I would need to go out and, and sort of study that more because I don't, 
I don't know if people consider that to be binge watching. I, I haven't heard that used in the same way. The binge is sort of used for everything. All right, I binge this, I binge that, you know, like a binge homework, I guess, if you do like homework for a long period of time. So um, the, the term is thrown around, but you know, if somebody's just staring at their phone for a while and, and flipping through videos, um, I'm not sure if they would, I, I would need to ask. I, I mean, I would need to go out and interview people. Um, I think that it, it sort of it makes all of this much more complicated. I mean, control is such a big part of your book and your research is about con that control dynamic. And if you throw in social media, you know, how much of that algorithm, that recommendation algorithm is becoming the programmer for you, especially with, I think of autoplay after YouTube and you spend hours on YouTube going down that rabbit hole. Um, I think that control dynamic would be really interesting as a follow-up, uh, ML is, you know, how much did you find that as you got into binge and you're researching this, um, and viewers have the control to pick what they want and then stick with that show when you're not on the DVD and you're on a streaming platform, that immersive experience, when does the viewer lose control? Uh, well, I think, so first of all, I think with, with, with something like YouTube where the algorithm is, is sort of uh, giving you what to watch, one of the, the, at least for now, the key features of our understanding of binge watching, and again, this is probably subject to change, and if we talk about this in two years, it might be completely different, but uh, for now at least, um, there's still this idea that pretty much everyone agrees on that binge watching is about being involved in the same story for a prolonged period of time. So you can be on YouTube, right? And watching something and then there's suggestions to watch other things. And if you let it autoplay, um, you might be on a binge of video watching, but it doesn't sort of meet the criteria of binge watching, at least as we, we sort of are coalescing around a definition because it's not, it, you know, maybe it's similar subject matter, but it's not the same kind of story. It needs to be that continuous story to, for it to be binge watching. It has to be on the same YouTube channel, same YouTube personality going through. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it gets interesting. Like when you, when you, you know, I, and this is something I, I've been exploring uh, more recently. But with the idea of sports, right? So, like, if you watch like the NCAA tournament or if you watch the World Cup, uh, I found that people's viewing habits of that really sort of match in a lot of ways. You know what what people's motives and habits and rituals are for uh, for uh, for binge watching in the traditional sense. The only difference is it's sort of live, right? And so you have sort of less control in that sense. Uh, but you're you're following a continuous arc, right? There's a storyline with episodes that that lead to a, a finale. Um, and so I, I think that um, you know it's 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 complicated. But there needs to be that thread. That needs to be that that story that that continues through. Um, in terms of losing control, right? I mean, I think that that's the really interesting, ironic, and and just complicated, fun thing about this this binge watching as a phenomenon, as a uh, and, and, and as a project and something to study. Because you know, in some ways, you are gaining so much control by being able to control where, when, um, you know, how you watch, um, you know, consume as much or as little as you want. But the interesting thing about that seemed to have seemed to be that our expression of that control was to like consume as much as possible, I guess, because we had been deprived of that control for so long that now we can, now we can just keep watching. And so let's keep watching and watching and watching. And um, to the point where it, it definitely, the word binge makes so much more sense and why it's such a lively word because um, you are losing control, right? A binge is a loss of control, <laughs> um, but it's at the same time you're gaining control by losing that control. That's why it's, it's such an interesting term. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, people, people do have, um, I've written a few papers, um, a few articles in the past couple of years about, um, ways to sort of moderate that and, and sort of aligning your motives, uh, for binge watching, like what you're trying to get out of it, whether it's relaxation or narrative immersion, um, with the content selection. So rather than being letting again, an algorithm pick for you being intentional about what you are choosing to watch and why, and that can sort of lead to uh, more control. But yeah, I mean, that, uh, part of the fun of it is being lost in a story, being sucked in, um, and, and I guess in some ways losing control. But again, I, I would bring us back to that sort of high culture, low culture dynamic between books and, uh, and TV again, because if you lost yourself in, in, a, in a really great book, would you, would you feel like, oh, I'm losing control of myself. Like I gotta, you know, I gotta do something, you know, whereas if you lose, you lose yourself in a TV show, there's still that baked in feeling of, oh, I'm being passive. I'm not, I'm, I'm you know, I, I need to go out and do something productive. Right. Um, and I think, I think that that, that's, it's still there, that lingering high culture, low culture dichotomy uh, is, is still there. And that's why the, the term control is so, so powerful in some ways. The, the, the DVD is a lot like the book. There is a definitive end where I guess streaming would go on and on uh, essentially. And I, I love the 2003 example you give of the Family Guy. I knew people who had the Family Guy DVDs and would just watch them over and over. Um, and, and that was such a, a big a moment, I think, for, for binge watching because I think that's when I personally became aware of it. it had to be around 2003. Right. And, and again, and you, you were asking earlier about the audience controlling the narrative, right? You know, Fox had canceled Family Guy and the viewers had these DVDs that they watched and they were watching them in such number that Fox had no choice but to take the show back, to put it back on. So again, that, that's another example of how the audience can control the story, you know, and, and literally, you know, <laughs> you know, resurrect a show that had been canceled by a powerful network. I mean, that's, that's huge. And it felt huge at the time. I remember those DVDs. They were great. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just going to jump in with, with one of my last, my last questions. And honestly, you sort of just answered a, a good chunk of it. And that's sort of why I want to jump in. But, you know, a lot of the book, one of the big themes, and you, you mentioned it a few minutes ago, is sort of working against this stigma, uh, in part culturally with the United States, in part to your own biography, that television is and always will just be, you know, the quote-unquote idiot box. And that when you put it against this new era of binge-watching and a, and a new golden age or a third age of TV with such high-quality shows, uh, you know, we can really work against this stigma and, and, and sort of stop making binge-watching such a, a bad phrase, you know, or a bad, a bad word. And I mean this half seriously, but I also kind of half joking. I was going to, and you sort of answer this, but, you know, is there a counter-argument, though, to be made? Like, like you're, you're sort of setting up that binge-watching is not the idiot box, right? It's better. It's, it's more positive. But is there something these days, or at least from your data, where you'd say, well, yeah, this is actually bad binge watching. This is binge watching the idiot box version of TV. Like, is there something negative or is it just simply that so long as you're in, in, enmeshed in the story, so long as you're getting pleasure from it, so long as you're sort of enjoying it, there is no such thing as a, as, as a bad binge watch. There's definitely such thing as a bad binge watch. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, look, I think the, 
the main this is the main point of the book is that binge watching is neither bad nor good. It's ambivalent. It's both good and bad. There are good aspects to it, bad aspects to it. Um, and I think that that is a really, really uh, important. I do not want to oversimplify this, and I hope that um, you know that comes across in the in the book. You know, there, you know, the 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 moment that that viewers are sort of gaining this empowerment by being able to control the story more and having networks listen to them is the moment networks simultaneously are exploiting that in order to make more money. And these new technology companies are basically, you know, uh, you know, taking advantage of something that the audience sort of was empowered towards this revolution, using that revolutionary narrative to sell, you know, Netflix and all these streaming companies uh, to the, you know, push out their competitors, those old bad, evil broadcasters. And I, I, I get into that a lot in, uh, in, in chapter four of the book when I look at the commercial constructions of binge viewers and how that was sort of exploited. So it's neither good nor bad. It's, it's, it's ambivalent. It's both at the same time. And that is something that's so important. And sort of what I, I want to kind of come back to with this idea of stigma, uh, both in culture and education and those things. You know, I, I, teach, I teach sports communication and media. I teach, uh, you know, students how to understand um, – you know, popular culture, uh, sports, particularly among that. And I think the wonderful thing about having something like television, like sports that people, you know, so much of, of, uh, society uses, uh, for entertainment and for, for other reasons, um, is a really valuable, um, uh, tool for teaching for by providing students with that kind of accessibility that allows them to approach more complicated concepts that are, are behind all of culture uh, through uh, a kind of cultural product that they consume already and that they are excited about and they want to do is is really an important thing and I I, I think both in my own biography as you alluded to but also sort of in in the academy at large they're they're been for a long time, um, you know, a kind of stigma about um, such topics, studying such topics as television or, or sports or, or other things like that, because they were sort of seen as, again, low culture, not worthy of study. Uh, and by doing that, um, you miss out on the opportunity to, uh, you know, reach larger audiences with important, interesting, deep discussions about culture, identity, power, politics, economics. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, and maybe that was the intention of, of, of academics, uh, some of them for, for a while, because they wanted to keep that area, you know, sort of protected uh, from the masses. But I don't I don't agree with that. Um, and I think that, um, you know, television, binge watching, sports and other uh, other forms of popular culture are opportunities uh, for us to bring uh you know, interesting academic conversations to people who might not uh, feel comfortable accessing them through, uh, you know, theories or, um, or or concepts or languages that are just not part of their daily lives. Uh, and that's something that I bring into my teaching and my research and something I think is, is really important uh, about this kind of work, um, you know, to, to create the accessibility of those ideas by meeting people with literacies and, and stories that they they are interested in are, are really opportunities for us as scholars to, to research and to teach. I'll sort of end here by once again reading a creator of their own work and I think it, it, it ties in nicely or as you write in this book uh, but there are also many academics who believe that broadening the readability of their work is a mistake. I am not among them. 
So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve, anything else? I, I just want to say I, uh, I really love the speaking about what traditional academics do and don't do in their work. You're very self-reflexive in this book and you put yourself in the story. Uh, and I really I appreciate that. And I really like that approach, especially as uh, having two parents who are literature professors. And here you are watching TV. And I love that story where uh, your dad sends you to your room with the book. <laughs> And you know, he's like, read this book and then come out and talk about the meta narratives. And you were eight years old, I think, at the time. Is there anything you want to just say about that part? Because I, I really enjoyed uh, reading that section. I, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed reading that section. Um, I think that self-reflexivity is, um, is vital uh, in, in research. Um, I think uh, it, it adds uh, verisimilitude, particularly for qualitative work in the sense that why am I studying this, right? Like, why does it matter to me? And I think by telling those stories, I think they shed light for readers on the larger themes that I'm getting at in the book or that any scholar might be getting at, but also they might, you know, help sort of, you know, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but sort of expose like sort of your own things that you might miss. And I think acknowledging those are important. You know, I, I, I'm a binge viewer who's studying binge watching. That is very different than if I were a scholar who had never binge watched uh, and was just studying this phenomenon. And there are good parts of that and there are bad parts of that. There are things I probably just assumed because I, I knew this. Uh, but at the same time, there's knowledge that I had that allowed me to ask certain questions that maybe if I didn't have that, I wouldn't ask. So again, I think that transparency and that reflection uh, is is valuable in scholarship. And it's something that, um, you know, again, it's, it's sort of on the fringe, right? It's, it's not quite mainstream. I think it's becoming more common now or more... Um, Common isn't the right word, but it's it's happening more frequently now uh, in uh, in scholarship to a degree. The idea of sort of unpacking your 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 backpack and acknowledging your own perspectives in it, uh, as opposed to trying to be this cold, detached researcher who's looking at a subject and subjectifying it or objectifying it. You know what I mean? Like just, I, I think that that is uh, that is uh, changing. Um, and again, it's something that I, I I think is valuable in this work. Uh, and I also think it it. it it makes it richer, right? So you, you understand, you know, me being that eight-year-old, that sort of makes sense. Oh, okay. Well, no, you know, that, okay. I get why TV might sort of have that more, you know, that meeting for, for him. Um, so I, I appreciate you saying that. It provided me comfort as I now know I'm not the only kid that was studying the flow of stations and understanding <laughs> when commercial breaks were coming in and programming strategies. Uh, yeah, there was at least two of us out there now. We, we are not alone. We are not alone in that regard. And uh, and it's something, again, I, I'm, I'm hoping to, to I am uh, integrating into my future projects. Um, I, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning. I don't know if we were recording that, but yeah, I'm, um, my, my next big project is going to be on, on sports talk radio and um, sort of studying, uh, using this kind of framework that I used uh, in here, this model of, of looking at the journalistic history, uh, interviewing, um, you know, users. I'm also interviewing hosts and producers and stuff, and uh, as well as, um, you know, embedding at a, at a, at a sports talk radio station. But I want to, but I, the final chapter, I, I think, needs to be self-reflective and have that sort of narrative about why am I as a researcher interested in this? What about that is important to me? And I, I, I would encourage, you know, young scholars and old scholars, any scholars to, uh, to, to give, it a, give it a try. I think it's... Um, it's it's valuable for you and it is valuable for your uh, your your 
readers. So. It's a good transparency. It makes you human, right? It's, <laughs> it's not the sterile uh, academic readings that we're probably used to that, um, yeah, we get to know the person behind the research. Thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. And so listeners, I will uh, say again that if you are interested both in this topic and also this approach, much more accessible approach to a dense topic, please take a look for, and we'll put a link to this on the show webpage, but you all, most of you have the internet, you can find it yourself, but it is, uh, the new book is Binge TV, The Rise and Impact of the Viewing Revolution by Dr. Emil Steiner, and you can find that from McFarlane and Company. Uh, and as a lot of your podcasts say, if you can order it through your local bookstore, uh, that would be even better. You always try to support your local bookstore as best that you can. So uh, on behalf of Steve Voorhees, uh, I just want to say thanks again, uh, Emil, for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation. And who knows, uh, maybe down the road when we uh, do sports talk, uh, or you do sports talk, maybe we'll do some sports talk. Uh, with that next project. So thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to talk to you. I can't believe how fast the time flies by, um, but uh, I uh, certainly uh, certainly would be uh, up for coming back and talking more. So appreciate you both. So Steve, it was a lot of fun talking to uh, uh, Emil Steiner. I, I know you weren't with me in the last season of... Uh, of recordings, although you you were in there more than I remember you being, so I was happy to happy to see that. But what were your uh, what were your reactions? Uh, this idea of binge TV. A anything else you want to add? It, I, I think listeners, if you listen to that interview, you realize, and if you read the book, even more so, there is such nuance to probably what many Americans just take for granted as binge, right? And this idea with television that the technology, the control dynamic between programmer and audience member, uh, the history of it, TV marathons, the idea of, of what a presenter on TV would experience versus what the viewer experiences, and really just making us self-aware about how we consume media and, and at which point is it healthy versus unhealthy and you know uh, how streaming has positioned itself as anti-broadcasters if the content is somewhat better uh, and we can get into production standards. And I mean, there's just so much to dig in there uh, that the book covers this and it really made apparent what I have taken for granted in binge viewing, realizing like, like there's just so much to get in there. And then your follow-up question with social media, you know, that takes us down a whole nother path of understanding, uh, you know, again, this audience, programmatic dynamic and um, you know how much control we really have and what's going on behind the scenes yeah I, I you know I really originally we had him on for uh, sports documentaries and we talked a little binge TV but I just find him a, a really interesting guy and and I think if you do end up per, uh, skimming through this book listeners that idea that Steve was bringing up that 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 Steiner is just so, sort of so transparent about his own sort of uh, reasons for getting into the topic. It's really just interesting. And, and I don't want to bore folks who don't care about the research element of this listeners, but one of my favorite phrases that I was taught when, when I became a researcher is that if you really want to understand someone's research, you kind of sort of just need to look at their biography because our biography informs our research so much. And I think this is a, a perfect example of it. And also, 
you know, he has an interesting background as far as I believe he worked with Washington Post for a, a lot of years. As he mentioned, he teaches sports communication and, and sports and TV uh, down at Rowan. So uh, really a uh, multifaceted guy, very, very smart guy, nice, you know, nice guy in the conversations I've had with him. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. So uh, with that, I just want to thank you guys for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode this season. And again, look at the feed for the mini episodes and consider checking us out on Patreon. For Steve Voorhees, I'm Jonathan Bullinger. This is Inside the Box TV History Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.